You are now tuned in to the AddictedToSuccess.com podcast, where geniuses, entrepreneurs, and next-level game-changers share their juicy little secrets on achieving massive success. This is the advice you wish you heard years ago. Be prepared and take note as we expose the realness and the raw of what it takes to be successful on AddictedToSuccess.com. I want to have a quick rundown on, on what you've released so far. I know the first time I ever witnessed your work or, or your words of advice would have been through the documentary of what the bleep do we know mm-hmm. so um that was super interesting for me and for me it's like i was just saying to your assistant dana before that one thing that i find most interesting is the whole theory of mind over matter and i know that with your new book you are the placebo you know making your mind matter you touch a lot on the whole placebo effect and how we can actually receive a better outcome by the way that we think so, yeah, I'm super excited to go into that with you and find out a little bit more. Sure, let's do it. Yeah, so really to kick things off, I know that you do a lot of events around the world and you've probably witnessed quite a lot of awesome transformations. So throughout your life, what would have been the, one of the biggest transformations that you've witnessed with another human being? Oh my goodness, I've seen so many. I've seen people heal themselves of cancer, of diabetes, of uh, rare genetic disorders that medical science had no solution for. I've seen people uh, overcome some really strong uh, experiences from their past that freed them up uh, emotionally and mentally. Uh, I've seen people do some pretty uncommon things uh, and that's really where my interests are. So I can go through case history after case history if that's the direction (laughs) you want to go. What would you um, say was one case that was unexpected, something that you made a new discovery with within your own self when you witnessed it? Well, it's very interesting because one of the things that we're doing right now is we're measuring transformation. And uh, our advanced workshops, Joel, they're called information to transformation. And I believe that if you give people information, if you give them sound scientific knowledge, and I think knowledge uh, is power, but knowledge about yourself is self-empowerment. And um, when you give people really sound scientific information, and science is the contemporary language of mysticism right now, every time you learn something new, there's physical changes in your brain. Learning is making new synaptic connections, right? Yes. So if you give people information and then they're able to repeat that information, they're beginning to wire that information in their brain. Now they're they're developing a model of understanding. If you give them some instruction on how to apply that information, if they can personalize it or demonstrate it, it means they're going to get their behaviors to match their intentions. They should have a new experience. And that new experience then should produce some type of transformation. In other words, they should embody that philosophical information. Knowledge is for the mind, experience is for the body, and they begin to embody the emotions that are related to uh, that intellectual or philosophical information. But then, if we could record or measure the transformation, then we would gather more information to teach transformation the next time. So we begin to close the gap between knowledge and experience. Well, in the last year and a half, uh, we have measured over 725 brains, you know, functional scans. And we take, uh, in our advanced workshops, they're called information to transformation. We just did one in, in Cancun just to just a couple weeks ago. And we take certain people and we measure their brain uh, with a quantitative electroencephalographic reading. 
they go through four and a half days of training and then we measure their brain again to see if there's been any changes in their mind or their brain. Well, 93% of the people that do the meditations in our work have a more than 80% change in their brain for the better. That was clinically very significant for me. Our students are able to alter their brainwave patterns in four seconds, five seconds, nine seconds, 12 seconds. It's a skill. They know how to do it now. And the whole purpose of meditation is to get beyond the analytical mind. What separates the conscious mind from the subconscious mind is the analytical mind. And, and we learn that when you and I are analyzing our life within some emotion that's disturbing us, we drive our brain further out of balance. It's only when we get beyond the emotions and we are no longer entangled by them can we truly, truly learn and evolve. So um, we made scientific history in the last uh, year and a half. Uh, and so if you're asking about one particular case, well, let me just finish one other thing. We also measure heart rate variability. We have uh, hundreds of students wearing heart rate monitors. And when you experience gratitude or appreciation or joy or inspiration, there's a fluctuation in how your autonomic nervous system works and how your heart responds. So when you're creating reality, it requires a clear intention that's a mindful process and an elevated emotion. And when you combine a clear intention with an elevated emotion, those two ingredients have an effect on matter. They have some um, way to begin to alter the subatomic particles of matter. So we're measuring brainwave patterns, we're measuring, we're randomly selecting uh, five people uh, three times a day and we're measuring their brains while they're in meditation. We're measuring their heart rate while they're in meditation. We're measuring the energy of the room. We're measuring the energy fields around people's bodies. We're measuring the energy centers of their bodies. We've done epigenetic measurements on, in urine and saliva to see if people are truly making significant changes. And as I said, we made scientific history. And one of the things that's happened recurrently in our work, over and over again now, it's almost a trend, is that the, 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 the amplitude of energy uh, that people experience during meditation, uh, you will never see in a clinical setting. Some of them 10 times, sometimes 50 times, sometimes 100 times. We had one woman just recently, we measured her brainwave patterns. She was, uh, well, the normal range, give you an example of the, what the brain processes in terms of microvolts. Yep. is about 10 to 60 microvolts squared. That's when neur neurons fire in patterns. You could capture the voltage. Well, this woman was processing over a million microvolts squared in her brain. Now, Ooh. remember, 10 to 60 is normal. In other words, two things. A, she can't do that voluntarily. It's happening to her. Something, her inner experience that she's having carries an amplitude of energy that's so profound that it's rewiring her brain so that the past no longer exists. In other words, we, you can see instantaneous healings take place and we've seen people with uterine fibroids and uh, um, Hashimoto syndrome and all kinds of conditions in an instant have a, uh, a level of energy that their nervous system is processing in that moment that is so profound, she's not faking that. You can't fake that. You can't make that happen. 
It's in fact happening to her. Uh, so when we see those kind of measurements and those kind of changes, we know that a person's having a transcendent moment. Now that's not happened once, that's not happened twice, that's happened over and over again. And I believe that common people can do the uncommon if you set up the environmental conditions for them to do it. So it's an exciting time because we're seeing so many profound things happen. Uh, and you're not a, you don't have to be a Buddhist monk, you don't have to be a researcher, you don't have to be an academic, you don't need a PhD, uh, you don't need 40,000 hours of meditation. You just have to understand how to do it, and you have to get yourself out of the way. And we've seen over and over again that when you and I get ourselves out of the way, that's when we're at our best. And that in order for you to change something about your body, in order for you to create some effect in your external environment, or in order for you to create some new future time instead of a predictable time, you have to become nobody. You have to become no one, you have to become no thing, you have to live in nowhere in no time. You have to become pure consciousness. And when you and I get to that elegant moment where we're transcendent of our body, the environment, and time, is the moment we can exert effects on the body, the environment, and time. And we've studied it over and over again, you know, 750 scans, and I can tell you over and over again, that when that moment happens, we have all the biological and neurological machinery to do this. When a person tra transcends their identity, that's when they step into the unknown and they become pure consciousness. And it's consciousness that's the epiphenomenon of matter. And teaching people how to do it uh, is a skill. And we've all had moments in our life where we've all done something great. All we want to do is make it, uh, make it repeatable. Yeah, 100%. Wow. It's such amazing um, insight into how uh, meditation works. And you know what's interesting? Actually, um, a couple years ago, I never saw myself as like a spiritual kind of person. And my fiance, she pulls a lot of that out of me. She really gets me to, you know, look deeper into myself and be more present and spend more time on me. And she actually introduced me to transcendental meditation uh, a couple years back. So I tried that. And I remember the first time I ever closed my eyes after that 20 minutes I didn't want to come out of it it was crazy I, I didn't even think that I could even feel that way and it's so simple and so basic but that feeling you can't get it while you're asleep and you can't get it while you're awake either has there been studies at all on that to see what the difference is when you're meditating compared to when you're sleeping or you're you're like awake oh absolutely I mean you know uh, uh, we use uh, the understanding how your brain functions in terms of brain waves to be able to demystify that. For example, when you wake up in the morning, your brain chemistry changes. And when your eye begins to perceive light, uh, the moment it starts to pick up um, a visible light, uh, the pineal gland begins to make a, a, a neurotransmitter called serotonin. And when light diminishes during the day, a serotonin then turns into melatonin and you get sleepy. So serotonin is the daytime neurotransmitter and melatonin is the nighttime neurotransmitter. Now, along with the change in neurochemistry, what goes on is that your brain waves change as well. When you and I are talking right now, all of our attention is on the outer world. And because we're paying attention through our senses on what I'm saying, you're looking at me, you're aware of time, you're feeling your body, your, your, your neocortex, your thinking brain, has to create coherence or meaning between the outer world and the inner world. And so if we were to measure brainwave patterns in that state, you would, we would create what's called beta brainwave patterns. That's where the brainwaves are kind of elevated. 
you need a certain amount of awareness to do that. The moment you close your eyes and you eliminate the sensory information from your environment, you're no longer seeing and you play soft music in the background or you put earplugs in, it diminishes the amount of information that's going to the brain. And so brainwave patterns slow down and they move into what we call alpha brainwave patterns. Now in alpha, more of your attention is on the inner world and less of your attention is on the outer world. So you start to move into that imaginary realm. Well, <clears throat> if you teach people how to open their awareness, instead of focusing on objects and things and problems and people and places, but to open their focus and focus on space or nothing or energy, uh, not only do they create alpha brainwave patterns, but they create coherent and very organized alpha patterns. Now, when the brain gets coherent, you get coherent. When the brain gets organized, you get very focused. And when we live by the hormones of stress, anger, and aggression, and hatred, and judgment, and fear, and anxiety, and pain, and suffering, and guilt, and shame, depression, all of those emotions are altered states of consciousness. And so when we live by those hormones of stress for extended periods of time, different compartments of the brain that should be communicating with each other begin to divide. And when that happens, the brain creates very incoherent patterns. So when we open our focus and all of a sudden, the brain begins to get organized. What syncs together in the brain links together in the brain. And all of a sudden, different compartments of the brain start working together, and you feel more like yourself. Now, the side effect of that whole brain uh, state is you start to feel an elevated emotion. You start to feel you're in love with the moment. You're present. You're in gratitude. You feel joy. Now, I call that the natural state of being because that's when the body is very organized and very uh, uh, in balance. So uh, if we go a little deeper, we go into the theta brainwave patterns, and theta is when your body is asleep and your mind is awake. So if you get to that place, instantaneous change can happen because for the most part, most people, their body is their mind emotionally. So if the body is asleep and the mind is awake, it goes into delta, and that's deep sleep. So to answer the question, when we go to bed at night, we go from beta to alpha to theta to delta. When we wake up in the morning, we go from delta to theta to alpha to beta. So we move up and down the scale all the time. And um, you can learn how to become familiar with each one of those brainwave states. And you can begin to regulate and sustain certain brainwave patterns so that you can uh, have more effective uh, outcomes in your meditation or produce more effective changes in your brain and body and in your life. So um, there's a direct correlation and when we move up and down those scales we're moving from the conscious mind to the subconscious mind <clears throat> and um, uh, there's two times the door to the subconscious mind opens up when you wake up in the morning and when you go to bed at night. That's why it's really a good idea to start your day with a meditation uh, or finish your day with a meditation because you're not hard because your brain chemistry is supporting your brainwave patterns. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Wow. So ideally, it would be better for you to do it twice a day, would you say, or once a day is okay? Or? I think once a day is okay. Um, it's, I think in the evening, if you begin to review your day and see how you did and you look at your life and decide on how you can do a better job maybe tomorrow or you read something before you go to sleep that's important because it begins to program your autonomic nervous system okay great that's great 
Another question I had as well is um, there are a lot of people lately talking about the art of flow or getting into flow. And I know that a lot of uh, like successful individuals talk about this and say that, you know, they don't know how they achieve certain success. They just felt like everything just aligned and it happened. Have you researched this yourself? Sure, sure. We've spent a lot of time studying the zone and deep and demystifying it and studying that concept called flow. For example, if you're going to learn how to snowboard and you've never snowboarded before, you're going to go to get a couple lessons and you're going to listen to what the instructor says and you're going to think about what to do and you're going to rehearse in your mind and then you're going to get on the board and you're going to fall and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to work really hard and then you're going to start self-correcting over time. But you can't get your body to do what your mind thinks it can. But if you keep practicing in time, uh, sooner or later, you start out uh, getting the mind and body working together. And when you reach that point where your body finally surrenders to your mind, or the mind and body begin to unify as one, or you've done it so many times that your conscious mind is no longer in control, your body now has been programmed to do it subconsciously, then, then time and space begin to alter. In other words, your relationship to linear time and space begins to change. You feel like you have more time. You feel like you're more comfortable in your body. You feel more empowered by the energy of the present moment. And when you're truly in that present moment, it feels like there's more time then there is space. So you have a, a, a greater ability to execute outcomes in your environment. So the basket may look this big to a, to a, um, to a professional basketball player or to a martial artist or to a boxer. All of a sudden, the person's moves slow way down and your awareness of what they're going to do intuitively is already um, ahead of what they're consciously aware of. So time and space begin to alter when we move into the present moment and we start to see uh, very significant changes in awareness. Now, getting to that point, Joel, is the art. <laughs> I mean, whether you're playing yeah. ping pong and you have that moment in ping pong where all of a sudden you're commanding the space and the ball and you know exactly what's going to happen, people spend the rest of their life trying to get back to that moment again. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's a lot of conscious effort in the beginning, and then there comes a moment where you surrender. And that surrendering process means you're completely out of the way, and you are both the participant of the, of the process and the observer of the process. And when you're both the participant and the observer, you have a greater level of awareness. Yeah. Wow, that's a great answer. And you know what's funny actually um, how you reference basketball because one time I remember I played basketball for quite a few years and I scored maybe on average about 16 points, 14 points a game. And I played my last ever game and I knew it was my last game. I was moving out of the country. I was doing all these other things in my business. So I said to myself, I'm like, all right, I'm really going to play this out. I watched an NBA basketball player, like watched some of his highlights and I really pulled towards him. I thought, wow, this is awesome. I love those moves. And then when I went out to play the game, we were versing the top team on the ladder. We were like near the bottom. And that game, I scored 34 points. Everything just aligned. It was crazy. It was that feeling. of, And I felt like no matter what happened, you were going to like be able to pull yourself back up and score and do whatever you want. It's crazy. And the hoop did look like it was like this big, you know? 
<laughs> Every time I shot, it just went in. It was crazy. And that feeling, even to think about it right now, I'm like, man, that'd be incredible to be able to like go back to that feeling any time that you want and be able to command it. I mean, that'd be amazing to be able to do that. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, that's why we're here. We're here because we want to live in that flow all the time. And, you know, there's a very strong um, relationship between intention and surrender. You know, if we over-intend, we start to try. And if we over-surrender, we get lethargic. So that razor's edge between having a clear intention, and but, the, but along with that clear intention, trusting yourself and trusting the unknown and surrendering is the art. And, and uh, it's not something you can really define. It's only something that you can talk around because you have to have the experience uh, enough times. But I will tell you, though, and we've studied enough people, that when people start to experience a level of wholeness where the, the brain is working in psychic union, both hemispheres are firing together, and um, they're really in a state of uh, grace and joy and wholeness. They're satisfied with themselves. And they're, they're, they're present. Those ingredients somehow allow them to command more of matter or at least produce more substantial changes with their intention. And do you think energy has anything to do with it? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, energy is the epiphenomenon also of matter. And, and um, when people truly make changes in their body and in their life, uh, they have to manage their energy. And where you place your attention is where you place your energy. So if your attention is on your emotions, as an example, and emotions are a record of the past, then your attention is in the past. If you are trying to please everybody in your life and keep all your appointments and you are got a cell phone and a Facebook and a Twitter and a LinkedIn and your life is all about trying to manage all of that, then your attention is divided and you don't have a whole lot of attention for being able to place it in one particular outcome. So we know that when people start to call their energy back to themselves and they stop uh, putting all their attention on their external environment, just like an addict that's craving a drug, there's a period where the body begins to get very out of balance. But if they move through that and they start calling energy back to themselves, the more energy that they have, uh, the more energy they can use to create a new destiny with. So where, you, where your attention goes, energy flows. Yeah, yeah, 100%. That's right. So right. what are your thoughts on affirmations? Do you feel that they're effective? Well, one of the things that I learned after I wrote You Are the Placebo is that people only accept, believe, and surrender to the thoughts that are equal to their emotional state. So if you live in fear you will only accept, believe, and surrender to the thoughts equal to the emotion of fear. And when you accept, believe, and surrender to those thoughts without any analysis, you begin to program your autonomic nervous system towards a destiny. Now, so then if you are living in fear and you are saying affirmations with your conscious mind, which is 5% of your total mind, 95% is subconscious programming. So if you're going to I'm healthy or I'm abundant or I'm joyful or I'm invincible, but you're feeling fear or unworthiness, that's mind and body in opposition. You know, uh, thoughts are the language of the brain and feelings are the language of the body. So 
the, 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 those thoughts, those affirmations will bounce off because they're not equal to the emotions of fear. But if you get a person to move into a state of gratitude and into a state of abundance and they actually feel unlimited, they will begin to accept, believe, and surrender to the thoughts equal to that emotional state and they'll begin to program their autonomic nervous system to that destiny. So getting people beyond their emotional bodies and beyond their emotional states is really the key. And, and for example, in our event in Cancun we had a couple weeks ago, I could say that 100% of the audience was in a different state by the time they left that event, and they were in an altered state emotionally, and they were accepting, believing, surrendering to all kinds of thoughts that they would have never accepted, believed, and surrendered to if they didn't change their energy and their emotional state. So I like affirmations, but if you're in high beta brainwave patterns and you're analyzing your life within the emotions and you're trying to say an affirmation, you're not getting past the analytical mind to ever program the autonomic nervous system or the subconscious system. So teaching people how to get beyond those states is really, um, is really where the art uh, it, it, you know, occurs. Yeah, that's great. That's a great answer. The reason why I asked that actually is because I, I was talking to somebody about affirmations and they said that when they say affirmations, they actually feel worse because they feel like they're just saying it to try and feel better and they know that they're not that yet so that it makes them actually depressed. Well, sure, because their conscious mind is saying, I'm healthy or I'm wealthy and their subconscious mind is saying, you've been living and feeling lack for the last 35 years. It's bouncing off because they're, they're, the rational mind is saying, of course you're not wealthy. But if you were feeling abundant and you were teaching your body emotionally what that future could be like in the present moment and you began to change your chemistry and feel free or abundant or joyful, then you're more prone to accept those thoughts. So getting people to change those programmed states uh, is where, where it all happens. Beautiful. So would you say the most effective way to become a lot happier would be through gratitude? Well, you know, gratitude is one of the elements that we use in our meditations at the end because the emotional signature of gratitude means the event has already happened. You give thanks when something occurs. Or gratitude means the event is happening to you in the present moment. Now, your body is your unconscious mind. It does not know the difference between an actual experience in your life that creates an emotion and an emotion that you can fabricate by thought alone to the body. It's exactly the same. The body doesn't know the difference. So when you marry a clear intention of what you want, gratitude is the ultimate state of receivership because your body is the unconscious mind does not know the difference between an experience in your life that produces an emotion and an emotion that you can fabricate by thought alone. So when you marry a clear intention with the emotion of gratitude, your body begins to believe it's living in that future experience in the present moment, and your body begins to biologically change to look like the experience has already yeah. happened. What would you say would be the best way to become motivated? Like, say you've got a goal, but you're just kind of finding it hard to be motivated to get yourself up and go for it. Like, what, what do you find the most effective technique? Or Without a doubt. The, the highest form of motivation, uh, Joel, is called duty motivation or purpose motivation. It's having a vision bigger than you that somehow contributes to the whole. So if you have a desire to end world hunger, if you have a desire to spread consciousness across the planet or to demystify the mystical or, or to be the greatest person 
uh, you could possibly be so that others could do the same. Whatever your vision is, if it includes the whole, the community, the highest form of motivation is what's called duty motivation. The next form of motivation below that is called personal conviction motivation. That means I'm going to do this because I say I'm going to do it. It's still a high form of motivation, but if a person has duty motivation or purpose motivation, they're naturally personally convicted. Underneath that motivation is called uh, ethics or morality. Uh, and then the lowest form of motivation is called money motivation. So if you have a person who's duty motivated, they're naturally personally convicted. They have a great sense of ethics and morality, and the money always comes. So we always tell people to pick something that's bigger than them, and if it's bigger than them and it's contributing to others, they're going to get themselves out of bed in the morning. That's right. And do you believe that that's what separates a lot of the highly successful people in life from those that are just getting by? Or I think it's one element. It's not all the elements. I mean, uh, you know... Uh, there are several other behavioral uh, uh, attributes and characteristics that are inclusive. Uh, uh, I think there's several things that are involved, but um, certainly having a, 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 a vision bigger than yourself is, is one of the things that really is, uh, is, is a high form of motivation. Yeah. So basically finding your why, like what really drives you and, and living and breathing with that. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. So if you were to give your last presentation on earth to you know, your fans and your followers and, and everybody closest <laughs> to you, what would be um, your closing advice? Well, I think that our purpose in life really is to acknowledge that there's an intelligence within us that's giving us life, that it's both personal and universal. It's within us and all around us. And that our job in life is to begin to remove those masks and those veils of ignorance and the emotions that block the flow of the divine in us. And when we begin to move those layers away, that intelligence begins to express itself through us and we become more like it. We become more willful. We become more loving. We become more mindful. We become, uh, its mind becomes our mind. And, and the only way that you and I will ever begin to do the supernatural is we have to start doing what's unnatural. We have to give when everybody else uh, is in lack. We have to um, show courage when everybody else is in fear. We have to uh, um, you know, uh, show compassion when everybody else is judging. And if you and I keep doing the unnatural over and over again, sooner or later we'll become supernatural.